0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Eric Winsberg. Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Florida. His new book, Philosophy and Climate Science, is just out from Cambridge University Press. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, reports that there is a warming trend in the global climate that is attributable to human activity, with an expected increase in global temperature, given current trends, of between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 to 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit. But how do climate scientists reach these conclusions? In Philosophy and Climate Science, Winsberg presents the elements of climate science in a rigorous but accessible framework that emphasizes their relation to a variety of key debates in the philosophy of science. These include the relation between evidence and theory, the nature and uses of models and simulations, the types of probability involved in scientific reasoning, the role of values in science, and others. Winsberg Books reads as both an expert primer on how climate scientists try to understand the chaotic and complex system that is the Earth's atmosphere, and also an illustration of how scientific knowledge is created, debated, and used to inform public policy. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Eric Winsberg. Are you there?
1: Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Karen.
0: Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, Philosophy and Climate Science, um, from a very uh, a very well informed philosophy science uh, background. Um, uh, and there's a number of I, it, one of the things that I really like about the book is the way it uh, breaks down the aspects of climate science that you know many people, even those who who are you know, who accept the climate science, uh, you know, we don't really have a good grasp on how it is produced and what sorts of philosophical issues uh, might arise from that. And, and this is entirely sort of independent of a lot of the more, um, uh, you know, political and social issues that you, that you don't, you know, really touch on, although it's, it's obviously in the background. Um, So before we we get into the the details of the book, maybe you can say a bit about uh, yourself and and how you came to philosophy and how you came to write this book.
1: My background in philosophy. uh, So I got into philosophy. I suppose probably this is true of most of us. I got into philosophy mostly by accident. Um, I went to college expecting to uh, study physics. I studied physics for most of my time in college. Uh, but by the end decided that wasn't really for me. Um, I had luckily taken a number of uh, history of science classes and some philosophy of science classes and uh, decided I would go study um, history and philosophy of science for graduate school, thinking that that was itself a field. Uh, so I went to grad school at Indiana and uh, sort of gradually ended up uh, a philosopher sort of by accident, I guess. So.
0: Okay, and how did you get into this particular topic?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, I guess in college, I had gotten while I was doing physics, I'd kind of gotten interested in chaos theory. Uh, I had uh, there was a young uh, assistant professor at Indiana named Stephen Keller that was uh, also had written a, recently written a book on philosophy of chaos theory, and uh, that kind of got me interested in computer simulation, which was the topic of my dissertation. Uh, and was the main area of my research uh, for the first seven or eight years of my professional career. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, just, you know, I mean, given the sort of central role that simulation plays in climate science, it was a pretty natural topic to start focusing on. Uh, I think I started doing that in around 2006. In 2008, I was a visiting fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Durham in the UK. And uh, it happened to be that there were a number of, um, well, they were mostly statisticians, uh, but they were all people interested in so called uncertainty quantification in climate science, you know, how to assign probabilities uh, to hypotheses that are generated by climate models. Uh, and I had a mm-hmm. lot of great conversations with some of them. And uh, that was really what got me sort of full bore into thinking about climate science.
0: Okay, well, all of those issues, you know, c- chaos and computer simulation and uh, probabilities from a different number of different perspectives all come out uh, in the book, and I, I hope we get to all of them. Um, so, the, the starting point, um, as you know, you state at some point in the book, is um, the IPCC, right, the inter Governmental Panel on Climate Change, the international body kind of gathering the science on this, um, reports that, you know, first of all, there's detectable externally forced warming trend in the climate um, and that this is attributable to human activities um, and that there's uh, what you call an estimated or what they call, what is called an estimated equilibrium climate sensitivity uh, of between 1.5 and 4.4. 4- degrees Celsius, which is about 2.7 to 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, Now, all of that, what I just said, is, you know, includes a lot of really important concepts that you go through uh, in the book. You know, the idea of uh, forcing, um, an externally forced warming trend, um, what an equilibrium climate sensitivity is, and how that gets calculated. Um, so all of these things sort of come together in, uh, you know, what we typically would just say that there is evidence of human caused climate change. Um, and, uh, what you do very nicely is to break this all down for people who otherwise might not have access to the science, um, or, you know, any good understanding of it. Um. So let, just to, you know, we'll get into each of those things. I think, you know, the forcings is an important concept and, and so on. Um, maybe just to kind of lay the groundwork, we should, you can say something about the difference between, you know, climate and weather um, and why, you know, we shouldn't really be confusing these two.
1: Good. So, so weather is what's outside your window right now. Weather is so an expression that people often use is, Climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. The weather is uh, it, are the actual conditions that you're that you're experiencing today, tomorrow, next week. Um, whereas cl- climate is some attempt to characterize uh, what the average statistical patterns of certain climate variables are. So, I mean, if you were thinking about visiting Venice uh, two years from now in March, you wouldn't. Want to consult a weather forecast for that because that would be more or less useless. Weather forecasters can't really predict weather for uh, really much more than outside of a ten-day window is pretty typical these days. But they might be able to tell you, right, that you know, a typical March in Venice is uh, you know forty degrees Fahrenheit, typically rainy. Uh, I don't know. I'm just making that up. But so, but so, climate is. Uh, Climate is a way of kind of characterizing what the expected behavior of the weather is rather than what the actual weather is. And uh, it's, you know, it can be it can become a little bit controversial exactly how to characterize it. There's a kind of official definition, which is that it's the 30 year average of those variables. Uh, but that's, of course, arbitrary. And, and people who think there's you know maybe such thing really as a climate might. Uh, might want to bicker with that definition or, or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, what? How how is the? I mean, so what? Are, you start out with uh, the issue of the data, you know, the raw data, and developing the, that into a data set, right? Um, so, could you just to start us off, what is the? sort of basic raw data, the types that, um, that climate scientists use. Um, and how do they estimate the mean global, you know, temperature and then compare it to prior years?
1: Yeah. So, so you mentioned, uh, at the very beginning, you mentioned that, uh, we believe that there's, or the IPCC believes that there's been an externally forced change. So uh, the first step in, in ascertaining whether you think there's been an externally forced change is you want to determine what you think is the sort of natural variability of the system. In other words, you know, we all know that the, you know climate you know the weather can be a little bit warmer one summer than it was the previous summer. We know that there are El Ninos. We know that there are various things that make uh, the temperature that we, that we experience from day to day, from week to week, from year to year can vary. Um, and that happens. Mm-hmm. That happens even that happened plenty before the industrial period. That happens irrespective of any kind of external nudge to the system. So if you want to kind of detect that there's been an effect of an external forcing, the first thing you want to do is get a sense of what the natural variability of the system is. And you do that by looking at uh, uh, the the behavior of the weather over the last uh, let's say, 120, 130 years that we have from instrument records. Uh, you look at that, uh, say, going back the last 40 years from satellite records. You look at that by looking at ship's logs uh, for maybe a longer period of that than that. And and then you look at what's called um, the paleo climate. In other words, uh, climate that you can sort of uh, uh, try to get a handle on by looking at uh, proxy data, things like drilling ice cores and seeing what the evidence of various uh, temperature changes are in that, or you look at, um, you know, tree rings or uh, coral reefs, all of those can give you clues about um, what the weather looked like, uh, not just last year, last decade, last century, but even over the last several hundred years or last million years. Uh, and that, and that's, that's all by, you know, first of all, by way of trying to figure out uh, what, that, what, the, what the degree of internal variability there is in the weather so that then you can look at what's happened, you know, since, let's say, 1950, uh, we've seen a pretty steady uh, warming trend that looks pretty inconsistent with what we think is the internal variability of the system. So that, that, so that, that, that then suggests that there was an external forcing
0: could you could you let me just um could you explain this concept of an external forcing because that plays an important role in this uh,
1: I mean it's a it's a kind of it's a kind of an arbitrary distinction right I mean uh you know the world is the world contains everything it contains people it contains volcanoes it contains uh solar flares it contains all these things but you might you can you can kind of pick some of those and consider them to be external to the climate. So we tend to think of volcanoes as external to the climate system, so that if there's a big volcano eruption one year, that's a kind of external forcing. It sends a lot of particulates into the atmosphere. Um, They reflect sunlight uh, more than is normal, and that can cool uh, the climate. So, I mean, you could have counted, you could have in some sense counted volcanoes as part of the climate. Uh, We decided not to. We also Pretty obviously, think of activities happening on the sun uh that might increase the amount of solar radiation that we get as being an external forcing um and of course because we're human beings and we're kind of interested in the effect that we have as kind of you know deliberative agents uh we like to think of our activities as external forcings and of course the the main uh the main external forcing that we uh you know impart onto the climate system is that we put um we change the composition of our atmosphere by uh, burning fossil fuels, by uh, uh, deforesting, by raising livestock, by uh, making concrete, lots of other kinds of activities like that, which can uh, release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, release ozone into the atmosphere, release uh, methane into the atmosphere, etc. And all of those are, uh, all of those are gases, which, you know, can, uh, reduce the emissivity of the planet. That is to say they, uh, they reduce the rate at which, uh, the planet, um, re-emits, uh, radiation back into space after it gets it from the sun. And that can of course cause the planet to warm. So we think of that as an external forcing, right? The the, climate, the climate is sitting there, it's going through its internal variability, giving us the weather changes that we experience day to day, and then poof, a volcano erupts and that kind of kicks the system uh, by, by, you know, by reducing the amount of solar radiation coming, or there's a solar flare that increases the amount of solar radiation coming in, or, um, some of the little creatures living on the planet, um, burn too much stuff, release some stuff in the atmosphere. Um, and that, and that increases the, uh, the, uh, the ability of the planet to kind of retain, uh, radiation and warm it. So we think of that as a kind of, ex- a sort of lingo for that is that it's an external forcing.
0: Okay, so it's um, so what is one of the things that another point that you make is um, wh- when we're making projections um, from models. We'll, we'll talk about models in detail, and you can you can talk about it whenever you want to. Um, uh, we want these projections to be independent of the way conditions are now, and I thought that was. Could you explain that particular? Um, yeah,
1: so so I mean, this is a kind of you know, this is a kind of um, this is a kind of puzzle you might have about how climate science is possible, because right, everybody knows that um, everybody knows that the that the weather is not very real. If you If you turn, you know, if you go to the weather channel right now or go to weather dot com or wherever, you're going to see, uh, you know, a five day forecast or a 10 day forecast. You're not going to see a two-month forecast you're not going to see a 10-month forecast and you're certainly not going to see a 50-year forecast why because well for a number of reasons but one of them is obviously that we tend to think the weather system is chaotic that is um it has something like the butterfly effect in it which is to say that small differences uh, in what the initial conditions are today could make pretty big differences uh to, to what they're going to be in in three or six or nine days. Um, there's like there's an uh, expression there's a, a tactical uh, notion of the Lyapunov time, and the Lyapunov time of the chaotic system basically tells you how long does it take for uh, errors that you have to go up by uh, an exponential factor, uh, and it's about three days probably for the weather. So you know every time every time three days goes by uh the errors that you have kind of grow grow by an exponential factor so Mm -hmm. so so you're not going to be able to make predictions uh about you know if you think of predictions as uh the ordinary thing we do in science where you give me some initial data i plug them into some laws i predict what's what the system's going to be like at some future time if you're playing that game with the planetary atmosphere it's only good for about 10 days so, so, we're just not interested in that in climate science, right? Climate science, we want to know, we want to know, gee, if we, you know, keep producing a certain amount of carbon dioxide, and we wait around until twenty fifty, or we wait around until twenty one hundred, what's this going to do on average to the climate? And that gives us that gives us an ability to kind of get around uh, the problem to some extent of the chaotic uh dynamics of our atmosphere right we say we're not interested in predicting uh what's the weather going to be like on tuesday january 5th 2100 we're interested in uh, projecting uh in 2100 what will be the changes in the climate that is to say what will change about what you ought to expect on a typical january day uh vis-a-vis the weather and and really right uh uh, again, we also, you know, in climate science, we're really still at the point now where we're not very good at doing that on on small regional scales. We're much better at trying to just say very crudely what's you know going to be overall the behavior uh, at the planetary scale on, say, a 30 year scale. So we're interested in, in the question not of what's the weather going to be like, but what is this kick that we're giving to the system? What's it going to do to weather averages, let's say 30-year weather averages uh, and planetary averages? What's that going to be like after, you know, 70, 80 years if we give the system this kick?
0: Okay, um, good. So one of the ways, important ways in which we do these projections is is the use of models, right? So you mentioned your background interest in computer sim- simulation and um uh and not incidentally of course i mean i've heard this from a number, number of people who who um who are more skeptical about climate science that um that it's all kind of based on models um and i'm, I'm not discriminating here in any way about the the nature of models or anything i'm just sort of uh Passing on <laughs> what I get from some people, you know, the model, you know, it's the, the projections are they're only as good as the models and the models have flaws and, you know, and, and so there's the skepticism about the climate science, whatever its genuine motivation is often expressed in terms of skepticism about the models themselves. Yeah. yeah. So um could you could you say uh, you know about about how the models I mean I'll, I'll, there's a couple you have a couple of chapters about you know the models and then getting you know starting with equations and then moving on to dynamical models that can you know actually uh form the basis of projections. So um can you say something about models and then you know how we get to the computer simulations that as you just put it enable us to say uh, with some degree of confidence, which we'll get to again later, um, what these external forcings will do uh, to, you know, the planetary uh, climate in, you know, 30 years or something. Sure.
1: So I think, you know, one thing that's worth, one thing that's worth starting with is distinguishing between different kinds of roles that models can play, uh, particularly in climate science. So there's, for example, an incredibly simple model um, that, that actually tells us a fair amount about the climate system, and that's what climate scientists sometimes refer to as zero-dimensional equilibrium models. And they're all you're doing, right? You're just saying, look, uh, let's just pretend the planet is just, you know, a kind of a disk uh, that, you know, as you would look to you if you were staring on the sun. And uh, it's, it's receiving some radiation from the sun. And uh, that radiation obviously is going to build up the energy, uh, of the, of the earth. And, uh, if you, if it just sat there receiving energy like that, it would eventually become infinitely hot. So that can't be what happens. But of course, right. Uh, (laughs) we know from, we know from really, really, really well, uh, confirmed science that goes back to the 19th century, right. That, um, anything, any, when any body like that gets hot, uh, it emits, uh, radiation back. According to uh, the Stefan-Boltzmann equation, which tells you, you know, the, about blackbody radiation, essentially, so we know that, you know, um, we know that as the as the uh, as the radiation comes from the sun uh, and, and is imparting a certain amount of energy onto the Earth, the Earth will keep warming up and warming up until the Stefan-Boltzmann equation tells us that it's got it, until it gets to the temperature such that the Stefan-Boltzmann equation tells us. Uh, now the amount radiating back equals the amount radiating in. Okay. So you can you can do that calculation. Okay. You can do that calculation and that can tell that will tell you what temperature the Earth ought to be. Um, and I forget the number, but it's quite a bit co- it's a, quite a bit too cold. It's below it, it predicts an ice planet, basically, right? So you say, oh if you scratch your head, you say, well why is why do we not live on an ice planet? Um, and the, the simple, completely uncontroversial answer to that, right? Completely uncontroversial answer to that is that, uh, well, we forgot that the Earth has an atmosphere and the atmosphere is a bit like a blanket, right? The atmosphere, uh, rather than letting all that uh, radiation that the Stefan Boltzmann equation tells us is going to escape into space, it absorbs some of that uh, and then it re-radiates some of that back out, but it keeps some of it to itself. Okay. So, so, you know, so, you know, then that there's a greenhouse effect. There weren't a greenhouse effect. We would, we would be living on a frozen planet. We know what the greenhouse, what causes the greenhouse effect. We know that it's, uh, it's caused by all the various, uh, components, uh, all the, the different, uh, elements and, and, uh, and molecules that make up our atmosphere, we know that, uh, we know that it, it happens because each of these different kinds of molecules uh, absorbs a certain characteristic spectrum. This is all goes back again to the early 20th, if not late 19th century spectroscopy science. all sort of, you know, very well understood, well confirmed, not the tiniest bit controversial. So, so we know that uh, we know that the planet is quite a bit warmer than the simplest model predicts. We know that that's a result of, of the composition of the atmosphere. Uh, and we know that as you change that composition of the atmosphere, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, good philosophy expression, Ceteris Paribus, all things being equal, uh, the planet's going to warm up by a, by a pretty predictable amount, right? Uh, but of course things aren't Ceteris Paribus. They're, you know, that then, then things get sort of too complicated for that model, because for one thing, that model didn't tell us anything about how long is this going to take? You know, I add some, I add some components to the atmosphere. I change, I change the, that kind of balance. I change the amount of radiation that's going to get trapped. How long does it take before it reaches the new equilibrium temperature? That model I just gave you can't tell you anything about that because it's not a dynamical model. It's just an equilibrium model. It has no time parameter in it. Uh, it also can't tell you where any of that heat's going to go. Um, I think that, um, when, if I understand the history, right when people first suggested that this might be a problem, uh, in, in, let's say the 1930s, I think it was widely agreed that no, it wouldn't be a problem. All this heat would just go to the bottom of the ocean and we'd be fine. Uh, so, you know, so you, so, so, the, so the model tells you, uh, very crudely, um, you know, that, that there's a greenhouse effect that as you change the composition of the atmosphere, you're going to change, uh, the nature of that greenhouse. You're going to, you could sort of turn up the, turn up the dial on the greenhouse, if you like. But it doesn't really tell you how fast that's going to happen. And it doesn't really tell you where any of that's going to go. And so then, you know, you want to go to a dynamical model and a dynamical model of the atmosphere very quickly becomes highly nonlinear, highly um, uh, sort of analytically intractable, not the kind of model that you can reason with paper and pencil. So uh, then you start having to put some of those equations to a computer. Um, evaluating them step by step, and then and then things that, then things do become you know certainly they do become somewhat less reliable. And now we now we go from the, com, the from the domain of completely uncontroversial science to uh, to now models which can certainly be uh, overinterpreted. They can certainly be if you if you took everything that some of these computer simulations said literally, uh, you would probably uh, be uh, over overconfidently using them. But but they can but they can tell us some they can tell us some fairly useful things. They can tell us, um, for example, uh, they can tell us a, a fair amount about. They can help us to understand the degree of internal variability of the climate, which can then also be you know that's also kind of independently confirmed by data in the way that I talked about a minute ago. So you can kind of you can kind of run these simulations of the climate system you can watch in the absence of a forcing how much does the cli- how much does the weather fluctuate from year to year and then you can go and you can compare that to other you know data sources and you can kind of say oh yeah maybe these simulations aren't perfect but they do seem to be pretty good at getting the internal variability because they do actually on that question we can compare them with data and they do seem to be pretty good at that you can also you can also do things like you can test what different forcings do to the climate, not just in terms of whether they warm it or, or, or cool it, but the specific way in which they warm it and cool it. So you can, you can look at what the aerosols do, for example, when a volcano erupts, what do solar flares do, what does carbon dioxide do? And you could, this is what sometimes is referred to as fingerprinting studies. Um, and it gives you a pretty good feel for what different kinds of forcings uh, due to the climate, and you can see that uh, the kinds of changes that we've seen over the last hundred years or so uh, look a lot more like the fingerprint of uh, greenhouse gas emission in the models than they do look like volcanoes or solar flares uh, and sunspots or whatever um, in in the models. So. So there so, so there you, you don't you know you don't need the models to be perfect to be able to if you're if you're using them carefully carefully and delicately you don't need them to be perfect to use them for those purposes now um, you've mentioned you've mentioned a pretty important number you mentioned equilibrium climate sensitivity equilibrium constantivity now is more about now we're getting into everything I've set up till now has been about uh, about the past and about attribution right? It's about, it's about um, knowing that there's been a, a warming trend, knowing that that warming trend is inconsistent with internal variability um, and attributing that uh, to a particular external forcing, namely uh, increased greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but now, now you might wanna, so that's, that's all about the past and all about, um, about attributing causes to observed past behavior. But we also, of course, want to know about the future. So one particularly important thing we'd like to know is this number, equilibrium climate sensitivity. Equilibrium climate sensitivity tells us what happens if you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, what will happen to the temperature. So um, estimates, as you mentioned, I think they vary between. uh, So it it depends on what degree of confidence you want. If you want to be, I think the IPC says it's very likely, between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius. But if you want it to be, if you want to be a little bit more confident that it could be as high as six degrees Celsius or even 6.5 degrees Celsius. So you, you do see some estimates that uh, we're, we're, we're less confident about the possibility of, of sort of tails being to the right. We're pretty sure that 1.5 degrees Celsius is about the minimum. It could be 4.5 is, you know, probably the upper end but we're not, we're not near, we, you know, unfortunately, we don't really have a firm grip on what an upper limit on that would be. Although I think most people think it's probably below 6.5 degrees Celsius.
0: So when we're, so we're talking about the sensitivity, we're, we're talking about uh, for any unit increase of uh, the greenhouse gas emission, you know, which has been through these fingerprinting studies has been identified as a, as uh, responsible in some way for every unit increase in that, we're going to get this yeah, amount. So, so let's, let's be
1: clear about one that, thing here. Okay. We're talking, we're not talking about the rate of emission. Unfortunately, it's not the rate of emission that hurts us. It's the total amount emitted to date, uh, which is all cumulative. That stuff uh-huh. does not go away for centuries. So every, you know, every year we're adding, uh, I think about three parts per million. We're probably, we'll probably soon enough be adding four parts per million every year if we're not careful Um, and this is all cumulative and so the equilibrium climate sensitivity tells me um how much will the temperature go up when you double the total amount that's out there now uh i think the pre-industrial uh carbon dioxide was about 280 parts per million we're now at a we've now recently crossed the four hundred mark. Uh, I think that was maybe two years ago. We're probably at about four oh three or four zero five parts per million. So what equilibrium climate sensitivity effectively is telling you is once we get to five hundred and sixty parts per million, which will be double the pre-industrial period, how much warmer uh well, really it's this, right? It's equilibrium climate sensitivity. So what we're really asking is if we were to get up to five hundred and sixty parts per million. And then somehow magically put the brakes on emissions and wait for equilibration to take and and it you know it's, it's not exactly clear how long that would take, but uh probably thirty to fifty years is is probably reasonable uh so if you got to five hundred and sixty uh parts per million, held it constant there somehow, waited for the planet to equilibrate uh equilibrium e c s equilibrium consistency tells you. How much warmer will it be than pre-industrial? And the answer to that is, unfortunately, we don't know. It's anywhere between uh, about one and one and a half degrees, all the way up. It could it could easily be as high as six, I think. So, um, and that number, and by the way, that number, uh, equilibrium constant um, is calculated using the models, but it's also calculated from a number of other sources, right? We also we can get estimates of that by looking at the instrument record of the last. Uh, Hundred and fifty years or so, we can get that. We get cues to that by looking at volcano eruptions and the impact they have. We get cues to that by looking at um, two different kinds of paleoclimate data. We get it by looking at you know sort of thousand year spans, but also million year spans. All of those, all of those um, sources give us cues to uh, what equilibrium climate sensitivity is. And one of the reasons I think that IPCC is so confident. That it lies in that range, let's say one point five to six, is that while all of the methods, all of the detection methods of that number, um, have potential pitfalls, uh, they all kind of, they're all kind of, they all dovetail nicely. So that you know, um, the pitfall of one method is often not shared by the pitfall of another method. So it would really be, it would really be a remarkable coincidence at this point if all of the different detection methods that we use to, to estimate equilibrium plant sensitivity all agreed on that range of 1.5 to 6, uh, it would be really be a remarkable coincidence if they were all getting it wrong. Cause they would all have to be getting it wrong for, you know, pretty independently different reasons.
0: Right. Um, uh, you mentioned before that, um, you know, these projections we we've got it, you know, we're reasonably confident. We'll again, like, we'll get to the confidence issues, um, but we're reasonably confident about the planetary scale, which we've, you know, these the uh, the equilibrium climate sensitivity. Um, but we're not particularly good, at least now, at the on the regional scale, right? What what global warming? What what regional warming would be like? Um, can what, what why is that?
1: well i mean it's it's just because you're you know uh the more detail the more detail you want to know the less competent you're going to be in general but i mean if you look at if you look at the simulation models uh they tend to be relatively uh crude in some respects that have to do with that degree of kind of spatial resolution so they tend to have you know so it, they're their simulation models so they're discretized uh forms of continuous equations so they have kind of a you know a spatial grid that they're calculating this on um and in order to be able to run a a, you know a model of the whole planet for 100 years and not you know exhaust all of your computing power your grid is going to be you know 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers horizontally and maybe 20 layers deep into the atmosphere so it's pretty coarse in that respect um the, the, the geophysics of the planet is kind of coarse so you can't you know you can't have an exact replica of the Andes mountains in your simulation. you kind of just have a little you know spine running down the continent um, and and then you know and then in addition um, it's uh, it's hard to, it's hard to, the, the, the more you kind of looking fine-grained, the more difficult it is to tease out uh, signal from noise, uh, in particular, internal variability. So you don't really know whether what you're seeing is just kind of uh, haphazard dynamics of the model, or something that's really to be expected uh, in terms of the climate.
0: Okay. Um, so this may have been implicit in what you said before about you know about fingerprinting and and attributing uh, the warming to the greenhouse gas emissions. But um, um, how how do you You know, important question is how you get from the idea of, you know, simply finding some sort of a correlation or some, in very, very root sense, some data points that say here's a factor to saying that this is the cause of it. Um, How 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 are the causal uh, attributions being made?
1: Well, let's remember that this all started with causes, right? So long before anybody uh, had the capacity to look at these data very carefully, um, people going, you know, going back to really the early 20th century uh, knew about spectroscopy. uh, And they knew about uh, they knew about the fact that there were greenhouse gases and they knew that industrial activities were producing carbon dioxide. So the mechanism was known before the correlation was seen. So it's not like, it's not like, you know, we're just seeing, uh, my favorite example that's right is always, uh, I've seen this chart of, you know, after world war II in Germany, you look at a chart of stork populations, uh, and, and, and infant births and they're making you know, us a nice correlation. Right. It's just, not, it's not, it's not that kind of a situation, right? Uh, it's one in which what we first knew about was the mechanism, um, and, uh, and, and then furthermore, right, we have a pretty good handle on, uh, like I said, we have a pretty good handle on what the internal variability is. So we know, not only do we know that, not only do we know that greenhouse gases are a, are a potential cause, but we have a pretty good handle on what the other possible potential causes are. And, uh, you know, for all the flaws that they certainly have, uh, I think the computer simulations are pretty pretty adequate for for looking at the different you know looking at differentially what are these potential what are these potential causes uh doing so we not only we not only have you know we not only have data but we have you know let's not forget that as complex as the atmosphere is it's a pretty in terms of its constituent parts it's not it's not a very mysterious system, mm-hmm. right? It's it's the swirling around of oceans and atmospheres that obey, you know, 18th century physics, uh, combined with, um, you know, a heat blanket that obeys 19th century physics. So uh, it's really hard to do precise calculations with that physics, but it's not like we're peering into some mysterious black box where, you know, there's just some murky numbers coming out, and we're just finding correlations between them. We're starting with a pretty good physical understanding of how this system behaves. Now, it's a big, complicated, messy one, and keeping track of all the fine details of it is really hard. But it, we're not really in a situation where it's like, oh, how did you, how did you, you know find causes when you just had correlation? You no, know, rather, it was kind of the other way around. We, we really had a good causal handle on uh, this whole system. And, and in fact, you know, um, uh, really, you know, I mean, some people were predicting this going back to the 1930s, but really by the 19, mid, let's say mid-1980s, uh, there was a pretty good, pretty good scientific consensus that what we've seen, I mean, one can exaggerate a little bit how prescient the predictions were. But, you know, going back to the 80s, people were saying, you know, you're going to by the time we get to 2018, we're going to see record, you know, record temperatures. We're going to see uh, sea levels having risen. So these things were predicted um, and and now they're here. So it's it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 yeah. It, but getting at the causes itself is not the super hardest part of this.
0: Uh huh. OK, um, good. So, so let's, let's talk about, um, a cluster of different, you know, important concepts here, the probability. And, um, so you have a, you have a number of different chapters and, and I mean, I sort of recommend to all our listeners, you know, that, that everything we've discussed and will discuss, you know, there's a lot more to be found in the book itself. So, um, so the best, the best source is the book. Um, but, um, uh, so you, you discuss over a number of chapters uh the the concepts of, of probability of of confidence levels um, uh and all of these of course have implications for um, uh, both um you know actual you know when we should act, how we should act um but also you know again the people who people who who are more inclined to be skeptical um will, uh, will make more, um, they'll take note more of the fact that there is uncertainty and kind of, in a sense, kind of rest their case on, on basically saying, well, it's, in in evolutionary theory they'll say well it's just a hypothesis right and you've got the you've got the the sort of equivalent well these are only projections and they don't really know and there's no certainty and 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 on and on so so probability i mean there's uh you know one one of the important um, uh, arguments that you make in the book is that um uh, you know besides distinguishing objective likelihoods or chances from subjective uh, probabilities or credences, um, you argue that um, we're not going to get any true chance statements, you know objective probability statements about the climate. Um, but that it's okay if what we're reporting are in fact the subjective uh, credences of, climate scientists. So could you, could you explain, you know, those concepts and then why, why you argue for that it's perfect that what we're getting are subjective probabilities or credences and that that's perfectly fine.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. So first let's say a little bit about um, what, what I take the difference to be. So, I mean, we tend to associate objective chances so I, I suppose one place where people think if there if there you know, there's one clear place where there might be objective chances it's if 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 it turns out that quantum mechanics is a sort of fundamentally indeterministic theory and it just kind of you know as Einstein said if God just plays dice with quantum mechanics um, then it might be that we have uh, some systems which no matter what you knew about them uh, you could do no better than predicting. That they would come out in some kind of aleatory way, right? Uh, but we also tend to think that even, even, even whether or not that's whether or not the world is fundamentally indeterministic, we tend to think there probably are some physical systems in the world that are uh, what you might call chance setups, right? So if you go into a casino and you see a, a nice, beautifully symmetric roulette wheel that's you know pivoting around a perfect fulcrum and has a, you know, a nice beautifully smooth ball and then has all these ridges separating it into 36 different or 38 different rectangles or whatever it is, um, you might think, oh, and then you might watch the croupier roll this thing and track the statistics over it and see that, you know, look, there's pretty stable, pretty stable frequencies. The red, the red, you know, the red squares seem to come up exactly as often as the black squares. And. And not only do they come up as often, but it, no matter no, no matter as long as you look at a sufficiently big chunk of them, you know, if you if you look at 100, about 50 of those are going to be red and 50 black. But if you look at 1,000, it'll be about 500 and 500. So that just seems like the kind of system that, you know, produces chance outcomes. Um, and the weather, right, in many respects, uh, is kind of like a roulette wheel. We tend to think that the weather produces chance outcomes. And that's why that's why. Uh, the weather bureau can sort of confidently tell us things like 40% chance of rain tomorrow, because, you know, they've they've looked at their models and they've looked at the data enough and they can pretty confidently say that, you know, 40% of the time when we see atmospheric conditions like these under such and such situations, about 40% of the time, you're going to get rain 24 hours later. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. so the world, so the world has either fundamentally because of quantum mechanics, but even if not, because of you know certain kinds of arrangements of its constituents, uh, it exhibits these kinds of you know, pretty regular frequencies of outcomes given certain situations that enable us sometimes to say uh, there are these chances. but but we're not really we're not really in that game in climate science, right? We're not really in the game of being able to look at a system, exhibiting repeated behavior we're not really in the game of looking at something with any obvious like physical symmetries that we could exploit so there really there really probably aren't i mean this isn't you know this isn't an a priori argument with certainty you might be able to find some chances in climate science but i'm not really i'm not really sure where you would uh so so climate isn't really about when you see probabilities in climate They're not really about the system itself being chancy. They're about the fact that we have poor knowledge of it in certain respects. Right. So if you if you were to ask me, uh, you know, there's probably there's there's some fact of the matter, presumably, about what equilibrium climate sensitivity is. It's either one point five or it's three or it's four or it's four point five. But if you were to ask me, Eric, what do you think is the probability that it's less than three, let's say, that it's between 1.5 and three, I might say, yeah, that's probably about 50% likely. But I don't mean, right, when I say that, I don't mean that the world is in some sense like a chance setup that has like a 50% chance of giving me that outcome. What I mean is that outcome's already baked in the cake. It's already a fact of the matter about the world, what its equilibrium planet sensitivity is. But I just don't know. And I'm only about 50. I think it's, you know, I'm only I I, I would bet, let's say this is how some people like to think of uh, of these kinds of of credences. I would bet even odds that equilibrium climate sensitivity is going to end up either below three or above three. So it's a kind of it's a different it's a different way of thinking about what probability is. And I think it's the more apt way of thinking about what when, the, for example, the IPCC is very fond of attaching uh, probabilistic, uh, you know, riders to all of its claims, they'll say things like, you know, it's extremely likely that uh, we've observed a warming trend. It's over, you know, it's it's very likely that ECS is between uh, 1.5 and 4.5. It's extremely likely that it's between 1.5 and 6, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then they have charts that say, well, extremely likely means 99 percent plus very likely means 90 percent plus etc uh i think it's it's the only thing the only the only reasonable way to interpret uh those probability claims is uh along the lines of a kind of you know epistemic probability rather than a claim about some physical property of the climate system exhibiting a chance so so why is that you know so why is that uh why is that not alarming? I sort of think it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate feature of uh, philosophical vocabulary that we've always called these subge- that we've that we've called these subjective. So some, you know, some of the, the you find people talking about the this distinction in terms of there being objective probabilities and subjective probabilities. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I prefer, you know, I prefer the language of chances and credences, uh, and if we have to call it something like subjective i I tend to prefer the expression personalistic probabilities as opposed to subjective because it's they're not i mean they're they're simply they're simply reflections of uh you know our best estimates given the expertise that we have so uh when you know when the ipcc tells you that something is uh Overwhelmingly likely. What they mean is uh, not that, you know, um, not that uh, all all the scientists uh, that that are on the panel like chocolate ice cream and, uh, you know, uh, uh, vanilla cake and think that the probability is 99 percent. What they mean is, given, you know, given their extensive expertise, having looked at the models, having looked at the data, Having looked at how well the data match the models, how well all the different sources of evidence uh, are are integrated, what what the variety of evidence is for all these hypotheses, uh, these are these are what they take to be uh, the reasonable amount of 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 credence that you ought to have in various hypotheses. So, um, is that the, is that the best thing that you know? Is that the ideal situation? No. uh, uh, You know, we like certainty when we can get it. But uh, unfortunately, we're dealing with a big, complicated system. And so I think this is the best way we have of managing the epistemic situation that we're in. uh, And I think that um, it's a you know, I I mean, one has to have, obviously, some degree of trust uh, in the scientific community to be doing this responsibly. But I think I think it's, I think it's warranted. um, And uh, that's kind of what we get.
0: Okay. Um, Good. Um, So, uh, I mean, there's, there's more to discuss there, but I want to uh, make sure we get to some of the other big issues that you, that you raise in the, uh, in the book. Um, uh, One of which is, uh, well, you, you discuss um, uh, some like, the assessment of various mitigation policies and and various forms of reasoning about these versus, you know, like a kind of a cost-benefit analysis, um, which some people have argued is, you know, that's, that's the way we ought to do it. It's somehow more, I don't know, scientific or something. I don't know. Um, um, but uh, interestingly, you say, you know, the political sort of social, no political, widely construed um, agreements that we get such as through the Paris Accords, you know, are probably just as good as trying to do some sort of a, you know, more stringent or robust or whatever, uh, cross cost benefit analysis. Um, could you, could you say something about that? Cause it's, it's kind of a, it's a small, but well, it's a subtle, but it's, I think it's an important point.
1: Yeah. So let me say a little bit about, um, let me say a little bit about the target there. The target is, um, these things that are sometimes known as um, integrated assessment models or IAMs. Um, and yeah, the goal of these things is to be, to be uh, quote unquote scientific about um, determining what the right policy choices are. So in addition, right. So, so I take it, it it's, it's pretty uncontroversial or at least should be uncontroversial. I think that uh, if we want if we want to know, you know what's likely to happen uh, given, you know, okay, if you emit certain amounts of carbon dioxide, what's 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 the most likely thing to happen? That's a scientific question, and and we can do no better than building the best models that we can and looking at what what those models say. But then, if the question is if the question is um, what should we do? Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, the Paris Agreement is that we should. You know, we should we should try our best to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, but uh, but, you know, really draw a line in the sand at two degrees if we at all if it's at all possible uh, and avoid at avoid at all cost the risk of, of crossing that two degrees Celsius um, barrier. Uh, mm-hmm. OK, so 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 how do, so so why why do I think that the why do I think it's that it's not a scientific question what we should do? Um, and I think the answer is this, that uh, uh, the people who, I think, who make these, these integrated assessment models, uh, which are designed to, in effect, what they're designed to do is they're designed to calculate what the impact on the economy of a certain amount of emissions is, and then compare that to the cost to the economy of avoiding those emissions. Now, the second thing I take it is not that hard. We can, we can, you know, if I say, oh, you need to, you need to uh, cut your emissions by 20%, you can, you can pretty reasonably figure out, well, I'm going to have to build so many wind turbines or solar panels, or I'm going to have to uh, curb some growth by a certain amount or whatever. So that, that doesn't seem like the most difficult side of the equation, but if you're trying to figure out, well, what's, what's going to be the cost to the economy of these emissions uh, lots and lots of assumptions have to be made. Uh, you have to have a pretty good grip on um, what the emissions are going to do to, to warming. Uh, I've already pointed out that we don't have a very good grip on that. So if you look at that number like ECS, which ranges from 1.5 degrees to 6 degrees, that's a pretty that's a pretty broad range. And I don't think that we have – I don't think we, we have – a. We, I don't think we're in a position to have a really – good fine grain probability distribution over those values so i kind of said see to the pants that maybe it's 50 percent below three 50 above three but right. then that, it's made up i have no idea whether that's right or not um but, but then furthermore you have to have something to tell you given a certain amount of warming uh what's that going to do to the economy right i mean we don't that, and that's that's really hard to know because until you know what regional effects that warming is going to have, uh, who could say, right? I mean, if, 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 it causes, uh, if it causes drought in an area where there's a lot of farming, the economic impact could be quite large. If it, causes, uh, if it causes some ice sheet to collapse, suddenly giving us five or six feet of sea level rise, the cost could be enormous. On the other hand, if the regional effects play out a different way, the costs could be different. Um, and, and typically these models use very, very unmotivated and very coarsely uh, chosen so-called damage functions that, that map uh, temperature outcomes to uh, to economic impact. Furthermore, right, I mean, they, they make the fairly bold assumption that economic impact is all we care about. Uh, so, you know, if uh, if entire ecological uh, habitats are destroyed that don't have a lot of economic value, that doesn't—that's just reflected as nothing in those models. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they—they, they, they, you know, I my the the view that I defend in the book is just that all those models are acting like they're you know value neutral when in fact they're just loading in all kinds of uh, all kinds of assumptions. Oh, they also of course make assumptions about. They also make assumptions about um, how we should balance, uh, you know, the, the economic impact to us versus the economic impact to uh, future generations, right? So in that cost-benefit analysis, if we, curb, if we curb emissions now, you might think that has economic cost to us, but that the damage of the emissions has the economic cost to our grandchildren or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you have to have, and they, they, they then have to choose discount rates so so there's just in other words all of this is by way of saying that uh these models are sort of trying to make scientific questions which i take it are not really scientific questions uh that's part of the problem another part of the problem is that they're they're um they're acting as if uh they're the uncertainty regarding many of these relationships is much smaller than it is and they're acting as if um the sort of value that we place on uncertainty is, is also value neutral. So, you you know, some people might reasonably think that um, uh, something that has you know uh, a ten percent chance of completely annihilating our economy uh, is uh, more expensive than something that has a hundred percent chance of annihilating ten percent of our economy. Right. That that kind of comes out the same in a cost benefit analysis. But not everybody might have that same attitude to risk, um, right? So, so I just kind of go through lots of different ways in which these, uh, in which these IAMS are uh, sort of masquerading as being um, kind of objective calculations of of how to act, when in fact, often, you know, not surprisingly, many of these models ends up end up predicting that we really shouldn't do very much, uh, and we should be rather conservative in our mitigation, uh, policies. Uh, and I think most of those conclusions are pretty unwarranted.
0: Okay. So, um, uh, unfortunately we're like almost out of time, which, which really is unfortunate because there's a lot of other things to, to talk about. Um, so let me, let me just, you know, one last question about, uh, you know, from the book, but at the very end you mentioned, you know, you, you, you sort of don't, don't get into a lot of the you know, the science communication, the problem of denial and all that stuff. I mean, that's, you know, you stick to the philosophy of science and the, and, um, and the actual climate science itself. Um, uh, but one thing you do say at the end is the idea that we need to be cognizant of the possibility of an abrupt climate change. You know, the, you know so far we're talking, I mean, that is in the cards as a, as a, as a possibility, even though it's very unlikely, but as you also point out, um, our level of confidence in that, you know, sort of low probability is also is also sort of we're not very confident about that. So could you could you say a bit more about about this particular issue that you do raise at
1: the end? Yeah. So I mean, this I think this relates quite closely to what we were just talking about, which is I think a lot of a lot of the cost benefit analysis stuff is based on kind of looking at what we've seen and trying to extrapolate the behavior that we you know because we have seen some of the effects of climate change already uh that's pretty obvious um and it's natural to think we can kind of linearly extrapolate that but uh you know i think it's it's also if you if you look at the behavior of the models imperfect as they are they do kind of show you ways in which a system like our climate system is a delicate one and it has what you might think of as tipping points so um here's an experiment everybody can sort of do at home right get yourself a glass of water put ice cubes in it and then just watch them and you know the ice cubes will kind of sit there they'll kind of sit there and then fairly abruptly fairly abruptly you'll notice that the ice starts to melt and the ice cubes you know very quickly go from being pretty substantial to turning into Uh, much, much smaller volumes of ice. Um, And if you think of that as a kind of metaphor for the way our planet behaves, you're kind of in the right ballpark. The planet is probably full of um, fairly dramatic tipping points. We don't know where they are. We don't know whether, you know, we don't know whether they're going to be at two degrees Celsius or two and a half degrees Celsius or even one and a half degrees Celsius. And we don't know, is it going to be, you know, is it going to be uh, some massive ice shelf collapsing, making sea level rise by a dramatic amount? Is it going to be the thermohaline shutting down, right? The the system that kind of keeps, uh, that takes water from the Gulf of Mexico and keeps uh, Northern Europe warmer than it would ordinarily be. Uh, is it going to be, right? So we just, you know, the models are not good at telling us which of these things are going to happen, but they are pretty good at suggesting to us that we live in the kind of system that that has a number of these and i just uh it was just kind of i thought a nice a nice way of ending the book by way of reminding us that um uh tail risk is kind of what this game is about and and to my mind that's one of the reasons why a lot of these very you know um sort of you know careful cost benefit calculations uh, might be a little bit too conservative.
0: Okay. Um, so, uh, before we end, I'd like to, uh, finish with a, with a question about what you have next on your horizon. What's, what's your next research project or projects?
1: Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, there's always, there's, first of all, there's always tons of loose ends that need to be closed off. So I'm working on still some climate stuff. That's not that different from what's in the book. um, I uh I don't know. I mean I I'm I'm sort of toying with a fairly uh large change in the kind of work I do because I'm I'm getting more and more interested in um you know what 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 our policy responses are uh could be to this situation. Uh but that would that would take a fair amount of uh expertise retooling on my part. So uh I'm I'm kind of right now I'm you know I'm just kind of uh enjoying the fruits of past labor and, uh, toying around with a few different ideas. So stay tuned.
0: Yeah. Good. Well, I, I look forward to, to seeing what else, what, what, what you draw from this and then what other things you, you come up with. But, um, uh, so thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with me and to talk about your work on new books and philosophy.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun.
0: Okay. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Eric Winsberg, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Florida. We've been talking about his new book, Philosophy and Climate Science, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you for listening.